Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And we continue in the book of Matthew. And yes, that's a, a, a sober introduction, but I'm actually really excited about our passage. And we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, this greatest sermon. And by way of clarification, it's great because the sermon is from the lips of Jesus. Uh, I had to explain to someone that it's only by happenstance that my name is Matthew. Uh, we're, we're not describing my sermons, but Jesus's. Now, that, that's a bit of a joke. But it's a keen reminder of the practice of our time here on Sunday morning. We come not to hear our own opinions, but to sit under God's word, open plainly before us, and consider together what God would have to say to us in the life we lead. As Christians, we seek to be led by Christ's teachings. And what we often come to find, if we're honest, in an honest reading of the scriptures, we come to find that much of our thinking and preferences and understandings are not as connected to Jesus' framework as we think. In short, our lives are not as Christian as we imagine. That may be the case this morning as well. So would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Don't worry, I'm not going to dance. So uh, turn there if you haven't already. And our, our main idea this morning is simply this, my friends. Faithful followers of Christ love the unlovable. The, the idea of love is central to the Christian message and the gospel of Jesus. The word love, it appears over 500 times in the scriptures. In the biblical data, love, it's attributed to food, masters, God, Spouses, idols, God's word. Love is attributed to immigrants, women, children, our faith community, and much more. The scripture says a lot about love. But a raw assessment of our thoughts and words and actions in our life reveals that we are very selective in our love. We'd all readily admit it's easier to love someone or something that we feel deserves it. Mutual, healthy, honest, unconditional love might lead us to joyfully quote the theologian Chris Stapleton. And if you don't know Chris Stapleton, just pull your head out of the sand. He sings this. Without your love, the sky is gray. Without your love, I'm waiting on the sun to shine. Without your love, every hour is the darkest time of day. And every moment is a crime without your love. <laughs> well, that's all and fine in our best moments. But when about when the act and the choice and the emotion of love doesn't come easily, what then? Well, Jesus is going to put two categories of love before us that are especially, especially difficult. So would you read with me, please, verses 38 through 48. We'll have the scripture on the screen as well. Our Lord says this. 
you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons and daughters of your father who's in heaven. Because he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Because if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, this is God's word. And our first category this morning, as we look at this difficult passage, is for us to love our comforts, for you to love your comforts less. And specifically, verses 38 through 42 kind of summarize this whole idea, loving your comforts less. This week, I read a story of an old Scottish preacher who looked at this text and he said, and if I had a Scottish accent, I would use it. I don't. Just pretend. He said, If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. But on the third lick, that third lick, I say, belongs to you. Now, the Scot obviously had a sense of humor. But he also did what each person in this room does. We explain the text away. Because we don't really want to do what it says. So we make it say something else. So we have to ask some questions and consider very carefully what Jesus is commanding his followers to actually believe and act upon. So notice again, verse 38. An eye for an eye and a tooth from a tooth, it's actually a direct quotation from passages found in Leviticus and Numbers in the Old Testament law. And the main intent of the Mosaic law was to control excess. The language can sound harsh, but it's actually quite necessary. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So academics argue that this law, it gave judges just clear and just formulas how to punish people. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, this law, it protected people from personal vendettas and excessive retaliation. So if I killed one of your livestock, you can't come and harm me and my family. It's an eye for an eye. I'll replace your livestock. Maybe a modern day equivalent. If you scratch someone's car, they can't come and smash out your windows. See, even our laws today 
promote the necessary safeguards of repayment and not allowing revenge. The punishment must fit the crime. But as we've seen, Jesus takes the Old Testament law and he raises the standard. Laws are good and necessary, but he calls his faithful followers to not simply follow the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. So he gives four examples in verses 38 through 42 of being slapped, being sued, going the extra mile and giving to beggars. And he does this to call us to love our comforts less. Our passage squares itself on our personal relationships and the principle of an individual's attitude towards himself and others. So allow me one qualification before we look at these examples. Jesus and the apostles do not say that an eye for an eye, that principle or law, they don't say it's wrong. Surely the whole of the scriptures teach that justice is required for those who do wrong and evil, no doubt. The laws of God and good laws of our society should bring justice. We don't turn a blind eye to theft or abuse or ungodly ways. There are times to protect. There are times to resist. This isn't a call for pacifism at large. So here's how one commentator writes on this. Society needs justice, but we do not need to exact justice with our own hand. As individuals, we can entrust true and full justice to the state, but ultimately to God, and we can act in mercy. In the law of Moses, public leaders enforced an eye for an eye in the land of Israel, But the church has no territory or public magistrates. Jesus addresses that borderless nation, the church, in its private life. He forbids us the cold pleasures of a vengeful spirit. Jesus forbids the thought, well, I'll give him back everything he gave me because the law says I can do it. Indeed, Jesus requires the opposite attitude as we shall see. So in our attitude towards self and others, we look at these four examples in verses 39 through 42. And these examples are given to us not to be an exhaustive list of loving our comforts less, but clear examples how we may apply this principle to every area of life. So verbal and physical slaps, legal steps to take our shirt, a Roman government official legislating miles we don't agree to walk, and beggars depleting our resources. We have a lot to wrestle with, and we readily admit that we don't love any of those things. We don't love them. Jesus' call for love is found in a kingdom way of living that runs contrary to that of our culture and our human instincts. We can think of modern-day equivalents pretty easily, can't we? Turning the cheek on the playground when you're hit, someone making an uncharitable comment or assumption about you, that doesn't happen ever, right? Right. You should hear what they say about me. A literal lawsuit or the courtroom in our mind 
where we're tempted to devote ourselves, to defend ourselves, avenging any front to our character and comfort. Verse 41 strikes pretty close to home in our 21st century American context. We're the land of the free. The thought of a government impugning on our freedoms goes against the very waters we've been born in. Beggars, people asking of our time, money, and resources, extending ourselves to the needs of others. The call of these verses is a call to love yourself less and to die to yourself in your comfort. A kingdom way of living under the commands of Jesus means that we hold loosely our comforts. We constantly, we should be driven by the glory of God and not the preference of self. Is it possible, my friends, that we love our comforts more than we love Christ and his teachings? So just to stir this pot some and make us feel a little uncomfortable, I've done this uh, in Galatians when we were in James and 1 Peter, even earlier in Matthew, Every opportunity we've had so far as we've gone through our study and there's an opportunity to talk about the government, I've done it every time. Can you feel how tense it is in here right now? So let's jump in. Verse 41. You may be aware, but in Jesus' day, the land was under Roman rule and legislation. There was a law where the government, any official, had the right to require a man to carry his baggage for a mile. So, of course, like every government and every official throughout human history, it got abused. They would walk up on unsuspecting men and require them to carry their junk and their stuff. When the mile was up, they would find another man. And so it would continue until they reached their destination. And isn't it interesting? Jesus argues and urges for his followers to go the extra mile with this governmental official. Here's a portion in a quote from the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This passage is concerned with a man's natural resentment at the demands of the government upon him. He knows me well. He continues, it has reference to our dislike and hatred of legislation of which we do not approve. We might ask, why should I obey? How can I get out of this? That is the very attitude our Lord is condemning. Our Lord says that not only must we not resent these things, we must do them willingly. And we must even be prepared to go beyond what is demanded of us. The principle, Jones says, can be put this way. If we become excited about these matters or lose our temper about them, if we're always talking about them, and if they interfere with our loyalty to Christ or our devotion to him, if these things are monopolizing the very center of our lives, we are living the Christian life at the very lowest level. He would go on to argue that the believer in Jesus' day who went the extra mile would result in the official seeing a loyalty from that person that goes beyond comfort 
A supernatural loyalty loyalty that puts self-interest to the side. I'm letting that sit. But there are exceptions, aren't there, to this kind of relationship to the government. There are exceptions. Um, There's a, a quote and a qualification that Dr. Jones makes. He says this. This call from Jesus, quote, does not say that we are not entitled to make changes in the government. But we must always do it by lawful means. Let us change the laws if we can. Let us seek reform. If laws include injustices, we should seek to change it, end quote. So I'll give you an example. This week, I read every single line of HF 146 that passed this week in the state of Minnesota. And we should seek any way to lawfully reform evil statures like that. And I would ask that you pray for me. In the next couple weeks, for the second year in a row, I've been invited to go to the state capitol and seek to share the gospel with our legislators. See, providentially, God has brought us to a passage that ruffles some feathers because it is a severe hot-button issue in our time just as it was in Jesus' time. Isn't it interesting how we walk through God's word, we come to issues like this, don't we? And here's what I'm not saying. This isn't a Republican-Democrat thing. There's no secret meaning here or message. There's no political statement. We've been brought to a passage where we have to look at the teachings of Jesus and ask the Spirit of God to apply them to our heart. I have to ask myself, have I truly lived these kingdom teachings in my own life? And we would probably say, not usually. So what's the point? Jesus is calling the faithful follower of Christ to have clear categories for what is preference, what is self-driven glory, and what are violations of the standards of God. We should love God's standards and law and his justice. We should love less. What we should love less is our own comfort and honor, especially in our personal interactions. We should not seek retaliation. We shouldn't return an eye for an eye. We should seek to leverage our disagreements, our perceived inconveniences, our personal convictions and preferences. We should leverage them, and even our sufferings we should leverage as an opportunity to point to our great allegiance to Christ and his glory. And may God help us to do that. To love the unlovable, unlovable circumstances, and unlovable context in which we find ourselves. What a call. Oh, God, how? But next, I want us to see that Jesus calls us not just to love our comforts less, but to love your enemies more. So we shift from unlovable circumstances to unlovable people, even those we would consider enemies in verses 43 through 48. Verse 43 is interesting. Look at it again. It's interesting because it's half truth, half fabrication, as one writer calls it. 
you can read laws in the book of Leviticus that lay down the category of not holding a grudge and loving your neighbor. That law is pretty clear. Love your neighbor. But to hate someone personally, that's not quite accurate when you line up the teachings of Scripture. No doubt there are passages in the Torah, in the Psalms, and even the book of Revelation that speak of righteous hatred toward wickedness and evil. But the Scripture never commands or recommends or allows and gives room for the hate of individual enemies, ever. However, we are at the same time to look at the eternal perspective of a God that speaks judgment to those who turn from him and don't follow him. Here's how one commentator explained verse 43. In daily life, we have no right to adopt the eternal perspective. We cannot classify people. The man standing before us, he may be wicked, but we do not know whether he will repent or not. Remember the conversion of Paul. Once the arch enemy of the church, he became its great apostle. Therefore, we should be patient with sinners too. So Jesus takes this law, loving your neighbor, hating your enemy, with its half-truth in it, in verse 43, and he says, I have a better and higher kind of kingdom living I'm calling you to. Instead of a posture of hate, instead of proclaiming eternal judgment on them in this life, rather than posturing yourself against them, verse 44, love them and pray for them. Unless you want that to mean something it doesn't say. And we'll talk about our enemies in a moment, but I think we have to define love. What does it mean to love your enemy? There are some who try to use a very wooden definition of love and point to the semantics of love just being an act, just a, cho uh, a choice, no emotion at all. So I, I could say if love is just an act, to love my enemy can mean that I'll just do the polite thing and the right thing to them. But I don't have to love them inwardly. I don't have to have affections for them that are loving. I can hate them in my heart and love them in my politeness, we think. Christians, we're very clever, aren't we? So we'll say that Jesus used the word agape love. I've heard this before. They'll, they'll try to look at the Greek and say, well, the agape love, it's an action, not a feeling. Well, the problem with that is that the volitional acts of agape love in the scriptures are mixed with feelings. I've heard it said, love of enemies includes inward attitudes, not just outward deeds. You cannot genuinely pray for someone without really hoping for their good. So as we'll see, there is a base level of love and affection that is required as we rub shoulders with people made in God's image, even those we consider enemies. So the question we have to ask is, do I truly have love and affection for my enemies? Am I doing what Jesus says plainly I should do? And that, I think, rubs us a little raw. But we really have to wrestle with it, don't we? 
not just because it's part of the kingdom standard that Jesus is laying out, but as we see in verse 45, that kind of love is the pattern of the triune God himself. Does God have love and affection for his enemies? Yes, no doubt. And he does, no doubt he has a special love for his bride, the church, those who faithfully follow him. But does God love the world, a world full of those who have postured themselves as enemies against him? Does he love his enemies? Yes. Verse 45, he lovingly provides the grace of sun and rain even to his enemies. And we know from other teachings of the scriptures that God, maybe you've heard this before, God so loved the world, a world that is full of enemies and skeptics and doubters and fish shakers. God so loved the world that he sent his only son and whoever believes in him will not perish. Paul says that while we were sinners, separated, angry, enemies, when that was us, God sent Jesus to live, die, and rise again, to bring new life, new hearts. And God expressed love, not just in sun and rain, but forgiveness and change in a one day home in eternity for those who cling to him. God's posture towards his enemies is one day eternally concluded with judgment. Yes, but we have a patient gracious, loving God who draws, waits, and shapes hearts to himself. We love and pray for our enemies because we follow the very character and the example of God. That's why we love our enemies. Jesus told us in verse 46 and 47, the world is full of people who only love those in their circle. If we only love those who are lovable, how is that Christian? If God loves you and you're pretty unlovable at times, I may say so myself, we shouldn't have a problem with loving and praying for those outside of our circle, our group, our camp, or even our religion. Verse 47, the Gentiles, the unbelieving world is full of selective love. Having loving thoughts, affections, and deeds towards only people who look like you, act like you, believe like you, that is not a Christian concept. That is a pagan concept. And I'll confess that I have been guilty of that pagan concept. It's so easy for me to love people I click with. But if they say it a little differently than me, that's been harder. And, and as we covered in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, we live in a world full of anger and hate, don't we? We have to admit that we live more like the world than Jesus in this regard. And we'll posture maybe that we love our enemies and we'll pay lip service to that. But our affections, our heart is far from true love, isn't it? We are called to grace and truth to the world around us. We are called to an unflinching truth. Yes. And we are compelled to grace and love. So who are our enemies? I think I have a pretty good idea. So I made a list. People who put Canadian bacon and pineapple on pizza. 
kids, how about that kid at school that just drives you nuts, enemy? The family member, the family member who's deeply hurt you. The driver who doesn't know how to navigate a parking lot or four-way stop. The Packer fan who deservingly is losing their drama queen quarterback. (laughs) Biden. Trump. Obama. Bush. Walls. Dayton. Palenti. Ventura. There's always a couple laughs when you say his name. See, what's interesting, my friends, brothers and sisters, what's interesting is the tension that we're called to in the Christian life, isn't it? We're called to love truth and hate evil at the same time. We're called to love our enemies, some of which may be evil or have done evil things. There are calls from the Christian culture led by well-meaning Christian pastors and leaders who scream out that hating evil means we should have no loving affection, words or deeds or prayers for our enemy. And I would simply remind you, that the loudest voices are usually not the right ones. The call of Jesus is to love the unlovable, to champion truth and righteousness, and to zealously strive for love and prayer. Oh, how easily we're called to extremes. That is not the kingdom way. Did you you notice verse 48, though? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm going to be a little snobby here. I don't like my translation here. I have the ESV. If you have the NIV, the NLT, the King James, or the CSB, I like your translation even less. I don't get it. There's some nuance here that's not clear in our English Bibles. So let me just get a little nerdy for a moment, okay? Hang with me here. You must be perfect. That's a verb. That's an action. And it's a future word, future tense. And it has something called a middle voice. There's something in other languages called voice. Essentially, it's the property of the verb that indicates how the subject and the action are related. I told you it's nerdy. So let me just say it this way. To really emphasize my point, you could translate and read verse 48 this way. You must and you will be perfect through your action and God's. Jesus says, as it relates to loving your comfort less, as it relates to loving even the unlovable, hating evil, but loving enemies in that tension... You must be perfect. Or rather, I'm calling you to perfectly uphold this, and I'm promising that you will be perfect. You will hear this call and act and seek to achieve it. And the Spirit of God 
will shape this in you as he makes you more and more like your heavenly father. Jesus says, I'm calling you to perfection as you seek to love your circumstances, even legislation and even enemies. I'm calling you to perfection and I'm going to shape it in you. That's what he's saying. And we need to hear that, don't we? I need to hear that. Because when it comes to the call of love, my circumstances and my enemies, I've failed. I can't do this. I can't produce it. I can't manufacture it. And I don't want to. So we look to Jesus. Consider for a moment, consider for a moment right now the life of Jesus in light of our passage. Jesus was slapped. He had his clothes taken away. He was forced to endure Roman legislation. He had people begging from him and depleting from him. He maintained a hatred for evil, but loved his enemies. And he prayed for them as he hung on a cross. Father, forgive them. He was perfect, just as his heavenly father is. Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. And as we've read in Matthew, Jesus from the lineage of David, born a king, called out of Egypt, baptized by John, perfectly endured temptation, and actively obeyed and fulfilled all of this on your behalf. And now, brothers and sisters, he calls you to it. He says, follow me. He calls you and I to be poor in spirit. To admit that we're angry and we don't love our circumstances and our enemies the way we should. He calls us to mourn over that sin, to display meekness, to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And it will produce in us, the Beatitudes say. A clinging to Christ and his righteousness will produce in you and me mercy, purity, and peace, even with unlovable circumstances and with unlovable enemies. Faithful followers of Christ love the unlovable. What a high, high calling on the Christian life. So we're going to pray now. And what we're praying for is not in some, some cute Christian way, God, we've heard a sermon, we've come to a service, we pray and we go on our way. But rather, we pray asking God, would you by your spirit apply this to my heart? Because I don't love my circumstances or legislation or my enemies and I don't pray for them. I don't have affection for them. And on Monday morning, tomorrow's Monday, by the way, you will encounter unlovable people and circumstances. And may he help us to live out this calling. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, asking you to do something supernatural, to change us, We don't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and try harder. We come to you in Jesus' name and we say, help. May your righteousness, may your beauty 
transform my own heart. May I, may not, uh, God, would you protect us from making excuses for why we don't have to love the unlovable and help us to do the kingdom thing, to love. God, we don't do it in a mushy, soft way. We love fiercely. We love your law fiercely. We love truth fiercely. We love justice fiercely. And we love, God, that you know and you're concerned as well. We trust you to act. So, Lord, remind us that we don't have to be vengeful. We can be patient and trusting in your sovereignty. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a wonderful opportunity. Uh, This morning, we are celebrating some baptisms. So here's what happens during baptism. There's a lot of screaming and excitement and celebration. You're required to be excited because what, what baptism represents, it's a physical, tangible act of what's happened in the heart. And a healthy church is not one that gets everyone who looks and thinks the same. A healthy church is not one that has a pile of cash and a bucket in the back. A healthy church is not one that has a clever preacher up front or, uh, you know, an awesome, you know, music guy or something. A healthy church is one that proclaims Christ, sees hearts changed, and then we get to see tangible, physical expressions of it. Baptism, it does not save you. It's not a sacrament to add to your righteousness. It's a symbol. These individuals have died. They've died to themselves. So when they go under the waters, they're symbolizing they've died to their old way of life. But don't worry, guys. We don't keep you under those waters. We, we pull you back up because Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. And what these individuals are stating is that they have died and gone under the waters and God has risen them up to a new life and a new heart, even a new life and a new heart that loves the unlovable. So what's going to happen is this. Uh, We're going to come. We're going to baptize some individuals. They're going to make a profession of their faith. You're commanded to scream and clap like the angels would. This is a taste of heaven. It is. If the angels are rejoicing over every lost soul, then we too, the church, rejoice. And after the baptisms, we'll have an opportunity to stand and sing together.